Well, for the last 11 weeks or so, we've been doing what is commonly referred to as a topical uh, sermon series where we have been looking at a specific topic. Uh, in this case, it was the lies of identity as put forward by Henry Nouwen and how the doctrine of union with Christ answers uh, those lies. And obviously, by the amount of time I spent on it, I think topical sermons can be good, but they can also be dangerous uh, for the person preparing them because the topic itself can start to shape or color how he reads uh, the biblical text instead of letting the text uh, speak for itself. Now, of course, as sinful people living in a particular time and place, shaping the text to our cultural sensibilities uh, is, is always a, th a near and ever-present danger. It, it's, it's a threat almost every single Sunday for me, but still, it's more of a danger with topical studies. So case in point, this is from several years ago. I once heard a pastor in the area describe his, uh, his preaching method as deciding what he wants to say and then finding a passage of scripture that confirmed him in that. And as I was describing that to the session this morning, they say, well, you know, there's, there's some pastors who find like a poem or find an illustration, then go looking for uh, biblical passages to help them, you know, do that as if the poem itself would be the sermon. And I certainly understand that. I've, I've been guilty of that myself. But as I've, I've grown in Christ, I, I found I'm far more comfortable letting the text itself dictate the issues it wants to raise. And I found that God speaking through his word, really in a verse-by-verse -verse fashion, will raise issues or address problems that we need to hear or that are uncomfortable for us or that are weaknesses or failings for us, or maybe we're just blind to it or we've never considered the issue at all on our own. So for that reason, I'm getting back to something that's far more comfortable for me uh, personally, and we're gonna turn uh, for the foreseeable future to the book of Luke and go verse by verse working through really this magnificent uh, work that's almost like an academic treatise in, in some ways. So this morning we're gonna look at Luke's prologue and his reason for writing his account, for his reason for writing his gospel. This is Luke chapter one, beginning with verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this time, for the same desires that Luke had for Theophilus, that we might grow in this word, that we might grow in Jesus, and that we might have a deeper confidence, certainty even, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we are in union with him, that you indeed do love us, have showered your love on us, and that you will never let us go. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, in the power of the Spirit, amen. Well, as you consider a book like Luke, a first and obvious good question, I think, is, well, who is he? Who is Luke, and why should we uh, listen to him? 
Well, Luke, the author of both this gospel and the book of Acts, which really those are two books that should be taken together as, as one work, he was a physician, a very well-educated Jewish Christian, and he was later a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. In fact, you can see him uh, in some of the stories in the later parts of the book of Acts. And Luke and Acts together have some of really the highest prose of the New Testament. I mean, it reads like it was written by someone who was very well-educated in Koine uh, Greek, let alone in his knowledge of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Paul used that, and clearly Luke used that. And, and he's knowledgeable in lots of other things, including other Jewish writings. And Luke's books together, well, they take up more than a quarter of the New Testament, which is surprising. I think most people think it's probably Paul, but actually Luke uh, takes up uh, the highest percentage of the Old, uh, excuse me, the New Testament. And as one pastor described him, uh, Luke's gospel is a masterfully detailed academic account of the life of Jesus. And in comparison, uh, because all those gospels read, you know, slightly differently, in comparison, you can imagine Peter uh, reading Luke's gospel and just saying, Jesus, just say Jesus, you know, just get to the point. And of course, Luke does say Jesus a lot, a lot throughout his gospel, but he does so in a very literary, in a deep, articulate way that, that forces you, if you want to read it well, to pay attention to the details in similar ways that we saw with John and his gospel. Now, each gospel account was either written by an apostle, that's Matthew and John, or they were attached to an apostle. That's Mark, who was kind of functioned as Peter's secretary of sorts, and Luke, who was clearly attached to Paul. And either way, all four gospel accounts were accepted early in the church's history as authentic and authoritative uh, as the word of God. That said, Luke's account is not uh, the first gospel, and he says as much in that opening introduction. And most scholars think that either Matthew or Mark was written first, and it's obvious that Luke knew those writings and, and drew from them, even as John's gospel was the last to be written and is really distinctively different from the other three gospels. Now, as an aside, the way the gospels are ordered in your Bible as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as James Jordan argues, is not an accident. It's not an accident. It's not based on which one showed up first, or the order of importance, as if one is more important than the other, or it's just how they happened to collect them and they kind of stuck. No, Matthew's account begins with Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham, giving us a very Jewish gospel that ends with his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, it confirmed as the Son of God with authority over all things. Mark's gospel begins where Matthew ended in terms of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. He just starts with that. He's the Son of God and, and develops that theme until he ends with the gospel going out into the weird, dangerous, even poisonous Gentile world. Luke's account is written primarily to an already believing Jewish Christian church with the purpose, and we're going to say this multiple times, of those Jewish Christians growing deeper in their faith and in turn evangelizing the Gentile world in fulfillment 
of the end of Mark. And then John's gospel, in turn, is the wisdom of God for the Gentile world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's meant to hit entirely with Gentiles. And the book of Acts, which really in many ways is the fifth uh, gospel, begins with the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, and is the account of how the gospel moved from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the pagan world. So the gospels themselves are ordered, the church did this on purpose, are ordered thematically. They're ordered uh, thematically in terms of Jesus, the promised Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, who is both fully God and fully man, the Son of God, coming to his own people, fulfilling the promises of God in order that the nations might be saved. So for good reason then, Luke begins his gospel in Jerusalem at the temple and ends in Rome with Paul awaiting his day in in court at the heart of Gentile power in Rome. Well, in verse 1, Luke says that he has undertaken to write a narrative of the things accomplished among us. Now, a narrative wasn't just merely a story. A narrative uh, was a description, but it was a recognizable literary genre in the time. So what Luke does is bring Jewish prophetic writing, so in the sense that, kind of like what you see with the book of Jonah, Jonah's a prophet, Right? And that's prophetic writing, and it's a narrative. And he brings that together with kind of wider Hellenistic, that is Greek, uh, biographical or historical writing, like kind of what you can see with Josephus. And so Luke was intentionally writing a true historical account about Jesus, but he wasn't, he wasn't doing like a modern account that's merely giving us facts. No, he tells us what the facts and the events mean. So, for example, it's part of every American kid's education to learn about the Gettysburg Address and the, its impact on the Civil War. But no historian claims to know what the speech meant for the world in any kind of cosmic sense. You know, discussing impact or cause and effect is, is one thing. Meaning is something different. So when people do claim to know the meaning of events, like you know how some pastors claimed uh, to know uh, why, what God was doing with Hurricane Katrina. Oh, I know exactly what the meaning of that is. The rest of us rightly raise an eyebrow and say, really? You, you know what God was specifically doing there? Because I haven't heard him say a word. Right? Well, Luke's account is not merely historical, giving us the events and the impact. It's, it's giving us the key events in Jesus' life, but it's theological because it tells us what those events mean, what they mean. And as a historical work, it's generally chronological, but not strictly so. As he says, he's given us an orderly account, and by orderly, he, he's not so much concerned with chronological order. That's really kind of a modern preoccupation. And, and though Luke's account is generally chronological, he's not strictly concerned to be that way. He's concerned with giving us depth of meaning, as in, let me show you what God was doing in this moment and how everything the people of God hoped and longed for, everything the Old Testament promised has been accomplished in Jesus and what that means for his people. 
That's it. His purpose for writing is so that believers would grow in the truth and certainty of what God has done in and through his son. That's why, for example, uh, Luke alone highlights Mary's song, the Magnificat. In fact, you, you heard uh, that sung during the, the offertory today. Uh, he highlights that in his birth narratives about Jesus, which assumes, if you didn't know, and plays off of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel, which was written and sung a thousand years earlier. So what Hannah longed to see, Mary carried in her womb. That's what he wants you to see. He wants you to see the Old Testament and how it's been fulfilled and how that has changed the world. Well, in verse 2, Luke mentions those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Well, Luke's account is captivated by and founded on the word about Jesus and what he accomplished according to the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and ascension, who in turn, those same eyewitnesses, official eyewitnesses, in turn became the ministers of this word about Jesus to others, of which Luke has benefited. That's how he has come to faith. But it's not just from the apostles that Luke learns about Jesus, though clearly they are, are key. He considers and included the testimony of people like Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were all credible and important witnesses to Jesus' life. So, for example, it's safe to assume that Luke learned the Magnificat from Mary herself and asked her about it. What was it like? What were you feeling in that time? How did you respond to Elizabeth? What was going on with that? There's, there's things included in Luke's account that you don't find in other Gospels. And again, he's considered the other Gospels, and he personally knows those authors. And even when we find similar stories in Matthew and Mark, which you will, Luke has a slightly different uh, perspective on them. And that doesn't call into question the truthfulness of the other Gospel accounts any more than hearing multiple perspectives on a game-winning touchdown changes the outcome. No, what it does is give depth of meaning. It gives depth of meaning. And when it comes to Jesus and what he said and did, no one perspective can capture everything. How could it? And the point is that even when Luke was writing something new, he wasn't being innovative. No, he's well within the tradition even as he's, he's deepening it for us. And he mentions his friend Theophilus a name which means friend of God. And we don't know specifically if he was Jewish or perhaps a God-fearing Gentile. Uh, both Jews and Greeks would take such a name as Theophilus. Uh, either way, most scholars think it's probable that Theophilus was an elite of some financial means who was Luke's patron. That is, he was, he was keeping him in business, so to speak, and helping him while he wrote his gospel or went on his missionary journeys with Paul. And as we've mentioned, Luke is, is writing primarily to Jewish Christians to strengthen them in their, in their faith and in turn to use his account for further teaching of new believers. And the word Luke uses here uh, is where we get the word catechesis or catechism. Catechesis is teaching in the faith for the purpose of growing deeper 
in our knowledge and love for God. That's why, for example, the Westminster Divines thought it's good and proper to write a catechism. And they wrote a longer one, and they wrote a shorter one. And Luke says he's writing his gospel so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, certainty uh, does not mean that, that all questions will be answered and all debate silenced. There's, in fact, I think, no such thing as that kind of certainty. I, I have many questions about God and what has happened over human history, let alone things like dinosaurs that have no compelling answers for me. I believe in dinosaurs. I can't explain them. We've inherited, you see, the cultural crisis of the last 400 years, and that is a crisis that is anxious with questions like, well, how do I know that's true? How can I be sure that's right? How can I know what's real? How do I know these authorities are trustworthy? That's why, over the course of that 400 years, the scientific establishment has, without a sense of irony or recognition of their hubris, insisted that only things that have been rigorously tested according to scientific standards can said to be true. That's why they use that kind of language to sell shampoo. Scientifically tested. We, oh, it must be right. They said science. And I think the last three years has shown that the emperor, well, has no clothes when it comes to those kinds of claims. Science is one kind of way of observing the world. It's sometimes very helpful, a very useful one. But it's not exhaustive, nor is it definitive, let alone it cannot make the claim of absolute certainty on all things, let alone anything. Luke is not trying to give us that kind of certainty. He's not trying to remove all doubts as we think about them. No, even so, he, he's a known and trusted witness, and to riff on Leslie Newbigin, Luke's trying to deepen the church's faith and give them a proper confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. So while I personally have questions that I assume will not be answered in this life, lots of questions I assume will not be answered in this life. It's kind of like when you play that game with kids. If you could ask God anything right now, what would you ask him? That game never ends, right? So just as I have lots of questions that I'm looking forward to with an answer, I do have confidence that his word is true and trustworthy and that I can live by it and we can live by it together. Even so, to show you then, to just give you a flavor, because I don't just want to be talking about issues of certainty and confidence because we can get down the technical road, and I don't want to do that. To show you and to give you a flavor of how Luke himself wants to deepen our faith and understanding of Jesus, let's just consider, with our time remaining, one of his most well-known and beloved stories that I'm sure you all know. So if you had to give a summary of the story of Zacchaeus, what would you say? I was tempted to actually sing a little bit because there's a number of songs uh, about Zacchaeus. My wife advised that was not a good idea. Uh, though the, the youth Sunday school class said, that would be great, go for it. I think they're after me. Uh, I'm not gonna sing, but just ask that question, what is it about? What's that story about? Well, Zacchaeus, short guy, Wanted to see Jesus, climbed a tree, Jesus saw him, came to his house, had dinner with him. That's the story. 
That's the basic you know, parameters of the story. And it's a great way. It's a great way to introduce the story to children. You can learn a lot about Zacchaeus with just those uh, parameters. Learn a lot about Jesus, I should say, from just those, those parameters. So Jesus sought out this man, and he loved him. He loved him. A man that we all kind of get was not that, that lovable. And the basic meaning uh, of, of that is that Jesus seeks out the lost. But Luke wants us to go deeper. He wants us to go deeper. So if you pay attention to the details of Luke's account, and you must, when you read Luke, if you want to catch him, you have to pay attention to the details. Uh, this is the only one where this story shows up. And, and Zacchaeus, if you follow those details, was a tax collector, which means he was a traitor to his people and got rich off of them by way of the Romans. But he wasn't just a tax collector, as bad as that was. He was the chief tax collector, which means he was exceedingly rich, and in a sense, he was like the head of a legalized criminal syndicate, kind of like a mafia head that had legal standing with the Romans. And this level of wickedness is akin, this is the best I could come up with for a modern understanding, is akin to the pharmaceutical companies who come up with a new life-saving miracle drug, then charge exorbitant loan shark type percentages on their product and willingly allow sick and desperate people to go into debt for it to save their life. So like a profiteering, predatory pharmaceutical company, Zacchaeus could probably justify why it was legal to gouge his people even as he knew it was evil. So Zacchaeus was not merely lost as we as we think about the term in kind of superficial Christianese, he was a wicked, greedy traitor to his people whose death, say he had fallen out of that tree, most people would probably celebrate and say, good, glad he's dead. The events of Luke 19 happened in Jericho, the same place where Joshua and Israel marched around the city and the walls came tumbling down. You know that story too? There's a lot to that story as well. There's a lot to be made with that connection with, with Jericho, and, and I'll save uh, many of them until we actually get to that passage uh, a couple of months from now. But it's enough to say that Jericho in the book of Joshua was a second exodus, complete with the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, the first celebration of Passover in the Promised Land, the circumcision of the new generation of Israel, and in turn, Jericho was the site of the first conquest of the Promised Land, which happened not through military conquest, but through prayer. Through prayer. So it's not a coincidence that this event happens in Jericho, and we are meant to draw connections between the first Joshua and Jesus as a new and superior Joshua. After all, Jesus is the Latinized version of Joshua. So if you read him in his original language, it's not Jesus, it's Yeshua. Yahweh saves, that's Joshua. So Jericho in Luke, and this happens in other gospel accounts, is both a place of blessing and curses, depending on how a person responds to the new Joshua. Now, as an aside, we're meant to read Luke in conversation with Matthew and Mark. And in those accounts, two blind men who cry out to Jesus with, Son of David, have mercy on me, are healed. 
and they turn to him. So there are at least in the gospel two salvation events that happen in Jericho right on the cusp of his death and resurrection or what the New Testament sees as the greater and new exodus. Now, in the original events of Jericho, if you'll remember, only one family in Jericho is saved. It's Rahab, the prostitute's family. And they are saved by recognizing Israel's God and in turn receiving and hiding the spies, which was a daring act of faith and asking to be included in Israel. So Rahab would be accounted not merely as as part of Israel, but eventually as part of Jesus's lineage. Zacchaeus was a short guy who wanted to see Jesus, but because Jesus was surrounded by large crowds. Now remember, this was right before Passover when Jericho and Jerusalem, which were really only a few miles apart, would have been slammed with people. This is one of the high feast days of the calendar year. It's, it's like traveling Interstate 65 day before Thanksgiving, that sort of thing. So he climbed a tree in order to get a better view of Jesus. So just as in our own day, you know, rich guys don't typically climb trees to get a look at traveling preachers, so too in Jesus' day as well. So Jesus saw him and he said, today I'm coming to your house. And Zacchaeus joyfully, like Rahab, received him. But notice, Zacchaeus didn't invite Jesus. Zacchaeus didn't invite Jesus over. Jesus invited himself, and he knew Zacchaeus by name. And in turn, Zacchaeus, unlike many Israelites, responded to Jesus' call. And the crowds watched this interaction, and it was as public as it gets, and they grumbled about Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house. And that's a direct link to Israel in the wilderness and how they grumbled against God. But Zacchaeus, in response to Jesus, not only repented, he kept the law of restitution at great cost to himself. In turn, Jesus says to the crowds, salvation has come to this house. Think about that. That guy's house. Since he is also a son of Abraham, which would have just been revolting to them to think in those terms. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So that gives you an idea of what Jesus means by lost. He's not just a good old boy saying a few taboo words. This guy was as wicked as they came. And so that's an incredibly, hopefully you can see, an incredibly bold and offensive statement, at least to the crowd's sensibilities. And Jesus, knowing this, keeps going. He keeps going with the parable of ten minus. And Luke tells us that many in the crowds assumed that the kingdom of God, the long-hoped-for restoration of Israel, was going to happen soon. This is why people flocked to see John the Baptist preaching and why the crowds called Jesus the son of David during the triumphal entry. They were expecting the long-awaited king to overthrow Roman oppression. And when Jesus did not meet with their expectations... He didn't give them the exodus they were hoping for. They responded not like the blind men or Zacchaeus, but with, give us Barabbas, crucify him. 
So the meaning of the parable of Ten Minus, a story about a nobleman who goes to a far country to get a kingdom, sounds like Jesus, and whose servants both hated him and refused to serve him, is that those who receive Jesus, like Zacchaeus or the blind men or Rahab with the first Joshua, those people would have life. These, you know, the sinners, the disabled, the Gentiles, were the true people of Abraham. Those who do not, like the crowds grumbling against Jesus, will be, in Jesus' own words, slaughtered before him. So everyone who thinks Jesus is just meek and mild, go read how that parable goes. Wow. It's interesting that the New Testament, including John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul, are insistent that being genetically Jewish while being of some advantage, which it was, doesn't make you right with God. And yet here, Jesus calls Zacchaeus, this wicked, traitorous, extortionist Jew, a son of Abraham. And of course, Rahab, the Canaanite, is accounted as part of the lineage of Abraham and David too. It's not because Zacchaeus was Jewish. It's not because Zacchaeus was Jewish. It was because he received Jesus when Jesus came for him and called him. So this story... If you're paying attention to it, it's both incredibly hopeful. You know, even a wicked Jew like Zacchaeus or a wicked pagan, which she was, like Rahab, can have life with God. That's how gracious and merciful and full of love our God is. But it's also ominous. It's ominous. What happens when the so-called good people refuse, refuse to receive the true and rightful king? What's so brilliant in my mind about all of Scripture, and hopefully you just got a taste. Believe it or not, there's more to that chapter. There's more. But hopefully you, you, you got a taste. And it's not just with Luke. This is all of Scripture that it has something to say to little children. So do I think I should, you should be teaching what I just taught at VBS? Probably not. I like the Zacchaeus tunes. I like teaching about that. It has something to teach the youngest among us about how good and how kind our God is. But it is also incredibly deep that when you start to see these connections, that our God is sovereign over all things, that he's been directing the course of history over all this time, that there is no detail in Scripture that does not matter and doesn't have some bearing on other parts of the story, it blows your mind. It blows your mind and should draw you ever closer to your God because there, there's no end to its depth. And for good reason, you know, Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Luke writes his account and hopefully you can see that with just that little exercise with Zacchaeus. He writes his account with the hope that the people of God will want to go deeper, growing in their faith. They'll be hungry for this, that once you start to see how incredible it is, you'll want more, that you'll long for it. And you'll want to grow in your faith and your hope and your love uh, for God together in Christ as one people because we're meant to work this out together and to think through this together. It's why this church is not merely 
uh, committed to to just life and being here or programs. No, we're committed to life together around the word, sacraments, and prayer. All gifts from God for our benefit and our growing up in faith. And it is foundational to who we are in Christ. So I hope you're looking forward to the Gospel of Luke. It's incredible. It's so rich. And I can't wait to walk through it with you. Let me pray for us and we'll end our time with that. Heavenly Father, your word is a feast. And what's so beautiful about it to my mind is it's just like Thanksgiving. It can be like the kids' table. And easy to eat, easy for small palates. And yet, Lord, it is so deep and rich and there is no end to it. We thank you for the gift of your word as it teaches us about you and grows us in you. And I pray now for all of us here that your spirit would be work at work even in us now, that we might have feet to follow you in conformity to that good word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.